listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. From khn.org, the health system, there's an article that reads, Opioid deaths likely to hit record in 2022 in Cook County, Illinois. And um, the Chicago Tribune covered a heavy toll of opioid, the opioid crisis in Cook County. Um, the Boston Globe, meanwhile, talks about making opioid addiction treatment more accessible in Rhode Island, where fatal drug overdoses and his, was historically high, and um, how mental health, of course, folds back into this. I take this series personally. Um, I spent three years with New Season which focused on opioid use disorder treatment within 82 centers across the country. And I got to travel to those centers and I got to meet with politicians, pharmacists, people in the emergency room departments within their hospital systems that were nearby the centers. And we created protocols to get people into outpatient treatment. Um, Outpatient was the philosophy because we believe that people that were addicted to opioids needed to be able to become Um, number one, in treatment and and get the oversight from physician and pharmacist and counselor teams, but leaving them in their real world um, jobs so that they could, their job and their families, so that they could blend treatment um, with reshaping their lives. And um, we know that there's inpatient for uh, special cases, maybe you could even say more sincere cases, but when COVID struck the nation in the world, the opioid epidemic took a back seat. And I think that caused a lot of extra problems for our healthcare providers and people that were really focused on it. I think funding dried up and shifted to other things. Attention in the public shifted to um, obviously the um, the um, the issue with, with COVID and what it was doing and, and being so rampant throughout the um, throughout the world. And You know, pharmacists were left there saying, you know, nothing's changed for us. We're still seeing people come in um, with with addiction and needing uh, pain medications that are prescribed. Um, Prescribing got a hit. Um, You know, they started saying we need to limit prescription um, and the volumes that were coming out of the pharmacies. Um, There's an article out of Brown, uh, brown brown.edu news that said pharmacists can start patients on road to recovery from opioid use disorder, uh, the study shows. This was an aha moment for me to bring this back up through the Pharmacy Podcast Network um, because I said, what do you mean? Like pharmacists have been at the center of this since anyone even realized that there was an opioid um, uh, addiction issue. I mean, look at Dan Schneider and Netflix jumping on his story um, known as the pharmacist and how his son passed away from a bad drug deal gone by. And it opened his eyes up even furthermore to the rampantness and the disease of addiction and, the, and how this was tearing up our, our communities. The study from Brown, it says a study in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that pharmacists can offer a safe and accessible treatment starting point for patients with opioid use disorder and keep them better engaged than usual care with a physician. That's my aha. I mean, I already knew that. 
we already knew that. The listeners of this um, of this series probably already knew that. Physicians are are just, I mean, they're they're so over, in my opinion, overworked. They have so much to do, and the pharmacological pharmacist expert that's in there in your community that has the trust with the community is ready to do their job and ready to embrace the patients in their community. I think we need to empower pharmacists to become more of the leaders within opioid treatment and opioid use disorder. And we're kicking this series off with an interview with a pharmacist out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Ernest Dole. He is um, a clinical pharmacist at the University of New Mexico Hospitals. Ernie, I am thrilled to welcome you to this, kicking off this series, and it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I take this topic personally, too. Um, I'll just say at the outset, out of complete candor, that I've been a pharmacist since 1980. I got my um, PharmD in 1987, did a residency from University of Tennessee. I got my bachelor's from Colorado, did a residency at the Memphis VA, and then desperately wanted to get back out west. And was a geriatric. I worked at UNM's University of Mexico Senior Health Center for 10 years and helped build their clinical pharmacy. And then actually got bored, went to a for-profit company. And we did great work, but again, it was an aggressive for-profit company. We couldn't build more than 99211. Luckily, um, a job either opened up or was designed for me at the University of New Mexico Hospital's Pain Consultation and Treatment Center. And I was able to go in as a clinical pharmacist and deal with um, patients with chronic pain. And, and New Mexico is really new, unique. They've had a thing called the pharmacist clinician, which if you get a certain number of contact hours, which I had, um, and then you can, you can be certified as a pharmacist clinician. With that, you have a collaborative practice protocol with a physician. And mine, I think, was one of the first 10. And I, I developed it for um, when I was at the UNM uh, Senior Health Center and for prescribing and monitoring elderly patients' medications. I always think of the Board of Pharmacy Specialties and the rise of uh, the pharmacist taking the lead in opioid use disorder treatment and, and designing treatment programs that aren't um, rubber stamping. Um, as you and I have talked before we started recording, I saw an organization that was like the second largest uh, facilitator and treatment provider of opioid use disorder treatment, uh, medication-assisted treatment um, that back in the day um, was a dose-and-go environment where, you know, some of the centers were concentrating really on the counseling and some of them maybe weren't. And it was like, depending on who was leading the center and how passionate they were, would would give you a level of quality of treatment. And some of those centers got some really bad raps uh, throughout the nation um, and wasn't really focused on um, 
you know, specific treatment. And when I think of the people that I met during my three years in opioid use uh, disorder treatment, I, I met professionals, I met nurses, uh, lawyers, um, I met, you know, people that were blue collar, it really didn't matter. They all wanted to get better. They all wanted to pull themselves away. And the treatment that they were getting wasn't always the best for them because once again, it wasn't personalized. And I, when I think of what pharmacists do in general, it's all about personalization. And if we slow down and went back to a board of pharmacy specialties, is there such a thing as an opioid use uh, treatment pharmacist specialty where you could continue to study the disease, continue to understand the transitional opportunities from, um, from methadone to a suboxone to a Vivitrol to freedom um, to maybe not being on treatment anymore. Who knows? But if we put it in the hands of the pharmacist who understands other things happening with the patient from a pharmacological perspective in science. And I mean, is do you have you ever heard of a board of a specialty that focuses on pharmacists getting a a program or a certificate that really drills down into opioid use disorder? To be honest, I don't know. I mean, as I've gotten older, I haven't gotten out as much as I used to. Um, but to my knowledge, there is not um, a, a certification for um, pharmacists or clinical pharmacists being certified that they have a standard of knowledge base. I, I think what might be closest is, is I think the Society of pain and palliative care pharmacists have programs and certificate programs, and they may have one that, that specializes in addiction. I know that North Carolina Association of Pharmacists, the NCAP, um, has a certificate, and it's, it's the pharmacist caring for patients with OUD, a certificate program. And I'm sure that there are other states that probably have similar programs. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is the fact that if we put this in the hands of pharmacists to really start customizing treatment, it's going to be more effective. And once Correct. you do that, you start aligning the funding for it, whether that comes from Medicare Part D or Medicaid or something from a private insurance to empower the pharmacist to lead this treatment, communicate back to the primary care, the, the physician, in your experience, what has been your barriers as a pharmacist in helping pe people in treatment with kind of the systems, the status quo that's in place? Um, well, first of all, I have to say that I've been mostly involved in the pain field, not specifically the addiction field. But in either case, the huge barrier has been the barrier of being able to bill. I mean, ever since I started, we've been um, only able to bill at a 99211, which will never cover anybody's salary. Now, where I'm at now, actually, this model fit perfectly because I work with anesthesiologists who are interventionists 
um, for pain, for chronic pain, for doing epidural steroid injections, radiofrequency ablation. So with me seeing their chronic pain patients, either for a half an hour or an hour, that frees up the interventionalist to just stay in the fluoroscopy suite and do injections or interventions. And so when I got there, our clinic's revenue skyrocketed because I, even though I could only bill a 99211, the amount of revenue generated by the physicians to work at the top of their license generated, generated more revenue. So by having a model where every person was able to work at the top of their license, everybody's successful. And, and again, an anesthesiologist for an hour medicine consult makes far less money than for a 15, 20 minute injection or, or ablation. So when I was in that field, um, director of strategy with new season, there was a need to have an X waiver that a physician was required to have an eight hour training which I didn't ever think was enough training to really dig down into opioid use disorder, but that's just my opinion. But they had the training for prescribing medication-assisted treatment to patients with opioid use uh, disorder. Uh, in April of 2021, the Biden administration uh, nixed the training requirement and it opened up um, a new tab, um, a new opportunity for, for doctors, nurse practitioners, and pharmacists who wanted to be able to treat with um, buprenorphine. And um, here's where I'm coming to a crossroads. And that's why I was glad to have you on. Um, and that is, you know, if there was a specialist um, that, that was a pharmacist, pharmacist background, um, already has all that knowledge, and now you went through some type of certificate program that really drilled down into OUD specifically. And now we know that uh, pharmacists are prescribing in 17 states things like birth control, for example, with a team approach between the physician and the pharmacist. I would like to see something new be created between physician and pharmacist where the treatment might be kicked off by a physician but then it's taken, therefore, you know, further by the pharmacist that knows that there's probably other things happening. 62% of our um, patients throughout the nation who are suffering with OUD have some other comorbid issue or have some other, you know, treatment that they need. It could be something like hypertension or diabetes or probably maybe another mental health issue. And if pharmacists understood instead of whack-a-mole, let's stop the whack-a-mole, let's stop just focusing on OUD, let's back up for a second and look at the holisticness and the to totality of what that patient needs, there is a huge opportunity now that this has uh, gone away, the X waiver. And I don't want that to be an opportunity for a run amok situation for you know physicians and nurse practitioners to just go do willy-nilly i think it should enter in the age where pharmacists and the boards of pharmacy and the state associations all come together and say hey listen from a structural perspective nine times uh, we're seeing patients versus one time that the physicians seeing their patients throughout the nation that's a stat physicians or pharmacists are seeing patients more 
why not build something at a national level that we know that pharmacists that want to become specialists in OUD treatment, empower them to do so, and then start backing away from all of these barriers of um, right on the cusp, right on the knife's edge of maybe pharmacists prescribing um, or changing a, a medication because once again, there's a customization that is missing in some of this medication-assisted treatment where we need pharmacists to drill down into the specific patient's case, knowing what kind of uh, addiction that they have, how long they were addicted, what they're going through, what's their lifestyle, are they a functional addict in comparison to someone who can't even get out of bed? You know, there's there's all these differentiators that I think we just need to slow down a little bit and start treating patients in a much more customary perspective, including the chosen um, medication that you're using as a pharmacist. And your experience, have you seen a whack-a-mole kind of, uh, you know, issue with treatment where you're trying to treat everybody with the with the same treatment or are you given the flexibility and the freedom to really make some decisions as a pharmacist well i know at the university of mexico hospitals has a program called excuse me asap program which is alcohol and substance abuse program and i know they have a pharmacist there i guess what i'm not really familiar with excuse me is um how much clinical leeway that pharmacist has or if they act um, under collaborative practice protocol. Um, but I do know that the pharmacist is in, intimately involved with uh, dispensing the methadone or buprenorphine for a patient. Um, but again, they're clinical. I don't know if they have a clinical protocol and I don't know how much clinical activities are involved in that. Ernie, what I about think your idea is great. Yeah, what about your experience with treatment in in being a provider and being someone that saw the patient firsthand and the the maturity of the patients in treatment? When I say maturity, I mean you might have someone who is a perfect candidate for an injectable versus someone who needs much more structure. Um, to baby doing a, a dose daily because then it keeps them, it, it breaks the, it builds a new habit. That That's what we learned in a medication assisted treatment uh, center is these people were coming in every day for their dose. Of course, it mm -hmm. was methadone. It was, it was a liquid and they learned to change their life based on this new regimen, this new pattern. And it helped to kind of break some of their other habits that they have. But you know better than I do, being a treatment provider, that there were other candidates that were not needing that day to day to day to day. So when do we start shifting gears as provider to start meeting patients where they are within their treatment uh, goals and within within the maturity of their treatment to really start shifting gears? Um, I think today is a good day to start that. I um. Obviously, there's some overlap between the use of opiates for treating chronic pain and and addiction. And so and and by the New Mexico Board of Pharmacy Board of Medicine regulations, people, patients who are on chronic opioids need to have a urine drug test at least twice a year. 
And if I have somebody who has a um, urine drug test, and again, when you're drug testing, you need to do it as a confirmatory test that gives you a specific medication, it's metabolite nanograms per mil because there's so many false positives. Um, for instance, Wellbutrin, under the qualitative dipstick method, tests positive for amphetamines. And so when I see somebody not staying within the prescribed guidelines, what I'll do is I'll cut, I'll see them once a week, once every two weeks, instead of once a month or every three months. So we provide more structure around how we're approaching it. So I referenced um, SAMHSA a lot, the S-A-M-H-S-A, which is um, mm -hmm. kind of the leading uh, substance abuse and mental health uh, services administration. And it was always the place that we'd go for updates within uh, proposal creation, uh, treatment protocol, uh, backing data. Is the organizations, are, are they being um, novel enough to really embrace the pharmacist specifically to drill down into situations where a patient is dealing with two or three different conditions where once again, uh, the pharmacist is perfectly positioned to really start digging into treatment and how that treatment is different than someone who might be um, suffering with OUD as a standalone condition. But now we start mixing in things Kind of share your experience as a pharmacist when you were dealing with a patient that did in fact have, um, you know, multiple conditions happening at once. So in my practice, it's overwhelmingly female. And if you look at the literature, it, it shows that, that like 70% of chronic pain patients have PTSD from some terrible trauma that happened to him. And so I've create, created this construct in my mind that maybe one of the reasons that most of my patients are female is say, and again, I'm not saying this is every patient, but say someone, a female, was assaulted by a family member or a friend as a child. And they go to their adult figure for help, and instead they're blamed for it and made the perpetrator. So all that anger, betrayal, abandonment, etc., has got to go somewhere. And I think it transforms into muscle pain and fibromyalgia. And so... A lot of the majority of my patients have fibromyalgia, which interestingly, the guidelines don't suggest use of opiates, but by the time they see me, everybody's on an opiate. And, and so I think one of the very strong comorbidities is um, PTSD. And I'm, I'm willing to bet it happens to males too. It's just that males don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so in our in our practice at the um, UNMH Pain Consultation Treatment Center, we have the luxury of having behavioral health therapists. 
And one of our therapists does EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization retraining. And I've seen patients do an incredible 180 return around by approaching their behavioral health issues that may be driving the addiction. If that makes sense. It does. And thank you for that. You know, when I look at the standard FDA approval medications and I see on the list um, buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone, I say, well, if a pharmacist gets to sit down with that patient, look at all the charting, talk with the physician, talk with the counselor, the behavioral health um, coaches, does the pharmacist from a pharmacological uh, drug specific choice say to the physician, hey, this patient shouldn't be on buprenorphine, they should be on methadone, or they shouldn't be on naltrexone, they should be on buprenorphine, or let's transfer them to Vivitrol. I mean, what, when does the pharmacist really start digging into the very specific case to be able to say, we need to shift the specific substance that this patient is on because of their specific situation or, or treatment, um, you know, their, their treatment needs? So in my clinic, um, again, we have an interdisciplinary team meeting every two weeks. And so then we can dissect patients' situation much more thoroughly. And, and in attendance are the anesthesiologists that do the interventions. We have um, like two and a half PAs that will initially interview the patient. We have nursing involved at these meetings, we have behavioral health, and we have me and myself, who's the other clinical pharmacist. So we meet every two weeks to, to get a group collective opinion on how, how patients who are having problems, um, what we can do differently. So I, I, there's one side of this that is, you know, hey, we gotta we gotta keep people from from dying. Obviously, I mean that's that's the common denominator. However, when we get patients on treatment and they've been there a while, they're doing well. That's kind of the exact instance that I'm talking to start shifting gears from the from the pharmacist um, perspective and their consult. You know, it, you know there were there were stats in 2018. Uh, everybody's probably heard of this: uh, a death every 11 minutes, resulting resulting from 47,000 fatalities. Um, they said the most uh, effective treatment was one of those three FDA approved medications: uh, naltrexone, uh, buprenorphine, uh, methadone. Um, and I'm like, great. But what I'm thinking of is digging past that once people are on a treatment to assure that we're getting them to as little medication as possible in the future. And I don't know when that is. I mean, there is dosing that starts people at, I don't, I'm not very good with amounts, but 120 milligrams of methadone. And then all of a sudden over a period of three to five years, you get them down to what, um, 30 20, 10, just to get their bodies to a point that you're building a sense of freedom from any drug, any medication, teaching them 
from a biological perspective, rewiring their brain of what the opioid did to them, kind of rebuilding their their security in themselves, their confidence in themselves, helping them deal with stresses, which is where the counseling comes in and even the psychologist comes in. But it's that pharmacist that's watching these people's systems. I don't know if you guys are taking blood every once in a while or you're doing some kind of saliva test. Pharmacogenomics comes into it where you're really seeing are you even metabolizing correctly. But can you kind of give us using what you know and paint us a short future picture of where this could go if we evolve treatment? Well, and I think actually, hopefully where things would go would evolve into the situation I'm at currently where the physicians practice at the top of their license. Again, they also generate more revenue with the more procedures they do, where the pharmacist can spend an hour talking with patients. And when I see a new patient, it's an hour appointment. If it's a follow-up, it's 30 minutes. And after when I first see somebody, I always strongly encourage that they make an appointment with one of our behavioral health specialists. And so if we could, and there may be, it may be that I, I just, again, don't get out a whole lot. But if there's a pharmacist in an addiction center that has collaborative, that has pres- prescriptive authority under collaborative practice agreement with their physician, and then they staff the, pay, the their patient population every week or every two weeks, I think that's the model. Yep. And again, if a, it doesn't have to be in a situation where the pharmacist is in a clinic that does interventions. But if a physician initially meets the patient, spends an hour with them, they can bill for a 992142152115, which generates more money. Then the pharmacist can pick that patient up, see him more regular. They can bill at a 99211, but if the physician keeps seeing new people and able to generate more money for the clinic and then pass that patient off in a warm handoff, both people are able to practice at the top of their license. The social worker or the therapist can see them too. So we have a well-rounded safety net. I like that model. I hope that's where we're all going. I want to dive back into picking your brain about the substances. Uh, What little I know, I do know from just experience in MAT. um, Methadone is a full antagonist, um, meaning it it like occupies um, that opioid receptor. It it lessens that painful um, symptoms that that someone's going through uh, because of withdrawal. Um, it gives, um, it blocks that euphoric um, effect that the opioid's giving. And buprenorphine is that partial antagonist. Um, it does not completely bind um, with that opioid receptor, but it's giving that, um, I guess they call it like a ceiling effect. Um, it kind of plateaus and will, it will not in, you know, in, increase with, um, with with dosing over and over again. And then naltrexone is that opioid antagonist. It, it blocks rather than activates. So 
when you think of those three medications, I know you know that there are patients who are candidates for each of them or will transition from one to the other depending on the freedom that they have within their treatment. What can you kind of like tell our listeners about your experience in the differences of those three and the transition? Because another part of our series is going to be talking to somebody who understands that fragileness going from something like a methadone to a um, a shot once every 30 days. But methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone, what, the differences between the three, the candidate for one of them, is there an opportunity to, for pharmacists to start once again pulling those levers at the time that they've assessed the patient's treatment needs to do one or the other? Yes. And, and again, this is actually much more from a chronic pain point of view than addiction treatment point of view, but there is overlap. So methadone has incredibly complicated kinetics. So it first gets metabolized by cytochrome 3450B as in boy, and then cytochrome, 3, cytochrome P450D. And there's always, you know, people have different types of phenotypes in the cytochrome P450 system going the gamut of being an ultra-rapid metabolizer to a poor metabolizer. And if somebody has, is a poor metabolizer, both of the, the cytochrome P450D enzyme system, the cytochrome P450B system, you can have a much more rapid... Um, no, that's not... It always takes five half life, so it's not really more rapid, but it's a higher peak than you expected. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and I I don't know the exact metabolism of buprenorphine, but I know it's a much simpler kinetic mechanism than methadone. Now, Trexone, I've used it therapeutically for fibromyalgia patients, so that. Um, you can get a partial, a low dose, you can get a partial blockage of the opiate receptor, which in turn synthesizes more endogenous endorphins, or at least that's a theoretical mechanism. So if I could, and I keep telling people, if I could change every one of my chronic pain patients over to buprenorphine, I'd do it in a second. And so the problem is, at least with the sublingual products, all the sublingual products have FDA approval for opiate use disorder, except for one that's a, still a brand name, Belbuca, that has a, a FDA indication for pain. So I think for opiate treatment, the way I would line it out would be buprenorphine first, then methadone, then naltrexone. My, my fear with naltrexone is if you take something away from somebody, you've got to offer them something to fill that gap. Hmm. And, you know, what I don't think anybody's ever looked at is patients who are on methadone or buprenorphine, if they're given naltrexone, or if somebody's given naltrexone as a treatment, do they then, for opioid use disorder, do they then shift to alcohol or something else? Hmm. Because people will do whatever they need to do to medicate their pain. 
be it emotional trauma or physical pain. And buprenorphine is just a much simpler kinetic model to work with. With methadone, again, if you're a poor metabolizer, you can have a half-life that is at 72 hours. And when I, and again, this is more for pain. Um, when I consult and with methadone, one of the things I say is that you have to be incredibly patient and not make a dosage change for five to seven days. And I say seven, just because you'll get those slow metabolizers, outliers, and people just tend to remember a week more than five days. Mm -hmm. Yep. I remember um, our chief uh, medical officer describing the initial dosing, and it was a very fragile time for uh, the patient and their experience um, in withdrawal. And knowing that if you could dose them with X number of, of amount of the medication and they were on it for a 24 hour period, at what point in the time did they start feeling that withdrawal again? And then they would, um, you know, up the dose in order to make them feel a whole relief within a, um, within a 24 hour period. And that that's a balancing act, but that brings me back to the pharmacist. It brings me back to the pharmacist insight of, of maybe not being involved 100% of the time, because that might be overkill, but definitely at the beginning and definitely when it's time to transfer from one medication to the next in building additional freedom for that patient who is ready for it. Because as you know better than I do as, as a treatment provider, there's some patients that are going to be where they're at pretty much for the rest of their lives maybe. Then there's other patients who are uh, much more mature and much more, uh, you know, there this your your mind and it comes into this your your strength, you know, your your ability to say that's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna bite down. I'm gonna just like if you want to lose weight and you want to exercise or you want to get your diabetes on on track. It comes back to the individual fighting for themselves. They have to fight for themselves. They have to be regimented and it's not easy and they're going to fall off, you know, treatment every once in a while, maybe, or, or whatever. But it always comes back to, in this series, the pharmacist helping the patient to rise and to get back to um, as normal as life can be. Although no one's normal. I'm not normal. <laughs> None of us are, are normal, but as normal as possible. Um, I'm I'm thrilled that you're helping to kick off this series. Um, I'd like to have you back and giving us um, additional insights into what it's like to be a pharmacist in and be surrounded by patients, be surrounded by other care providers that you're teaming with, your physician teams, your nurse teams, your counselor teams. But the center of all of this, Ernie, is the patient. It's the person that we're all serving and that, we're, with, that the attention needs to be around. And in my opinion, it needs to be more customized than than what it was. And I, I like I said, I am not a fan of the rubber stamp. I want I want to meet patients where they are, and I want treatment to be customized. And I think we're missing the pharmacist input in in helping patients uh, stay on treatment, and then of course uh, get as close to the road of of recovery or become recovered um, as possible. God, God, I'd be glad to. This has been great. 
We are excited. If you are a pharmacist and you are interested in um, being part of this series or giving your opinions on opioid use disorder treatment in improving patient outcomes, please reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacists are our favorite providers. If there's anything we can ever do for you, um, anything, networking, uh, recommendations, uh, open positions throughout the country, we have our ear to the tracks of the pharmacy profession. Uh, we love you and what you do as pharmacists. Uh, you are our heroes. Ernie, this has been an honor, and I thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Look forward to coming back. Thank you.